everyone, this is Eugene, and what you've just listened to was a piano performance of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue by today's guest, Teresa Lee. Teresa is not only a pianist, but she's also the original dreamer of the Dream Act. She was born in Brazil to South Korean immigrants and then moved to Chicago, where she later inspired Senator Richard Durbin to propose the original Dream Act to provide relief for undocumented minors. And I first learned about Teresa through the PBS Asian Americans documentary, and I said, hey, Paul, like this is an incredible story. We should definitely reach out to her. Um, and Paul, you know, knowing people as he does, he said, hey, I already know her. Um, so at least for me, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to connect with her through this podcast. And I'm you know, excited that you'll be listening to her story. So I'm not going to go too much into the details because I think that she's such a good storyteller herself. And I don't want to kind of dampen the dramatic impact of it. But before going into it, I can just provide some context. So obviously, this episode is coming out on September 11th. So if you're listening to it on the release date, um, it's very timely in that sense. But other than that, this past July, a federal judge in Texas declared the DACA program illegal. And so now no new applicants can apply, or even if you apply, the applications are held in limbo until the Supreme Court decides you know, what's going to happen to this program. So uh, that's just the general context these days. And this episode was incredibly moving to me. And I think it's really important in the context of family separation, because so much is at stake for undocumented families. And without going into Teresa's story, like I said, uh, just to share a little story of my own, when I was in high school, I was in a leadership training group. And for a bonding event that we would go around and share something personal that others might not know about us. And I was really surprised that day to hear about two or three classmates who were undocumented. And I never would have known if not for that context. And they kind of conveyed to us the fear that they'd feel every time they heard a police siren. Um, and they, were, they were kind of just moved to tears by the uncertainty of it all. And I think, I think a lot of us can resonate, um, or, you know, even if we're not undocumented, just kind of empathize with that kind of stress and the uncertainty and difficulty of being undocumented. So I'm not going to go further into that in the preface, I just want to say that dreamers are not rare. They're probably among people you know. And yeah, with that, here's Paul and here's Teresa Lee. Families podcast, and today I'm super excited, honored, and feeling serendipitous in some ways to have our guest on the podcast, Teresa Lee, who is a New York based concert pianist, music educator, and longtime activist for immigration reform. Teresa, thank you so much for taking the time to do this despite your busy schedule. And I think just before we started this conversation, I mentioned that we had originally met a bit randomly uh, eight years ago while I was still in high school and we had both taken a bus, uh, a, a day trip from New York City to D.C., my first time in D.C., as part of advocating for DACA, which we can get into later, and uh, on behalf of undocumented youth. But I just think it's so special and, and meaningful, extra meaningful for me to be able to speak with you today and also to have seen you in the PBS Asian Americans documentary, uh, which everyone should check out. But first, I think before we get 
before I get ahead of myself, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and about your family growing up? Yeah, of course. So I'm going to backtrack to my parents. And my parents are from South Korea. And they were young kids during the aftermath of the Korean War. They lost everything because of the Korean War. And uh, in the middle of Seoul, the capital city, my dad remembers living in shacks on dirt roads. And that was the reality of Korea. They were in the third world country state. There were U.S. tanks rolling by, passing out canned foods and Bibles. And it was really hard to get food every day and to just get by. And so that was the reality that they were growing up in. And his parents decided that they were going to start over. They're going to immigrate. They went to South America. South America had their doors open at that time to a lot of Asian immigrants. So there was a huge wave of Korean and Japanese immigrants that went to South America and they got to Brazil. And in Brazil, I was born. And they had a small clothing business and they're doing pretty well until a relative stole my dad's checkbook and forged his signature and stole everything in his bank account. And they had nothing left again. And so what they ended up doing was selling their wedding rings. My mom sold her wedding ring and some other jewelry. And with that money, they bought plane tickets and visas to the United States because they heard that United States was the land of opportunity, the land of the free, and they needed to start over. And so we came to the U.S. with a visitor's visa, which ran out in six months, and soon we became undocumented. My dad tried as hard as he could to get a legal residency through a religious worker's visa. He was a minister. And it was very difficult. It was impossible, literally. And we became undocumented. And that's the story of how we got here. And this uh, all happened while you were very young. Is that, is that right? Right. When you I came was two to years old. Yeah, I was two years old when we came. And as I'm telling my story, you can see that this was all an effect of war and war is what makes people leave and it separates families and when we were undocumented i was seven years old and my dad sat us around our living room and told us that he has something very serious to tell us and it was a big secret that we cannot tell anybody outside of a family And we sat around and he said, our secret is that we are undocumented. And he explained to us what that meant. It meant that we didn't have a green card. We didn't have a citizenship. We didn't have this nine-digit number. We had a nine-digit number that the government issued us so that we can pay taxes. This is called the ITIN. It's a tax ID number. Other than that, we didn't have other proper documentation. So legally, we're not allowed to stay here. And if anybody found out that our family was undocumented, we would be separated. My dad would be sent to South Korea, my mom to South Korea, 
And myself, where I was born in Brazil, I would be deported to Brazil. And my little brother who was born in Chicago, he was a born U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. he would be put into some foster care in Chicago. And so since I was a little kid, we were constantly afraid of being separated. And we even had nightmares growing up of the police storming up our stairs and, you know, breaking down our doors and taking my uh, family away. And that's a kind of trauma that millions of Americans deal with on a daily basis. And even to this day, I have PTSD type of uh, reaction whenever I see a cop passing by. I freeze. I I, uh, I hold my breath and wait until they pass by because it's just something that I grew up with. Yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, what it was like growing up undocumented. And as I grew older, I started to understand more what it meant to be undocumented. It wasn't just that initial fear of my family being taken away from me, but also we couldn't advance in society. We were not allowed to take part in society. We were stripped of basic human rights. For instance, healthcare. We never went to the doctor when we we got sick. We did not have the right to tell a cop what was in our right. For instance, when my brother got into a car accident and the driver who was speeding past the limit and talking on her cell phone while driving, she was completely at fault and she should have paid for all of my brother's hospital bills. But my dad quickly told the police to write down in the report that the lady can go. She's not at fault. My son is at fault. And the police said, are you sure? And my dad quickly said, yes. And he told the woman, you're free to go. And the police wrote that down in his report. And we stood there in the ER in shock because of what my dad had done. We didn't even collect what was rightfully ours because we were undocumented. My dad was trying to protect his family from being separated. Yeah. The police knew that we were undocumented or the lady knew we were undocumented, they could take advantage of that. I think for someone like me, and I'm sure many people listening, it's hard to imagine the kind of constant threat and fear that you just described of feeling like you might be separated from your parents or your sibling. Do you think this is a common feeling among other undocumented youth? Or is it that they are fearful of being deported, but they know they will still be together with their family, with their parents or their siblings, wherever they go? Do you think this is uh, unique to your case where, you know, your brother was born here and your parents could have been sent to South Korea, you to Brazil? Or have you heard similar stories among other undocumented youth? Yeah, absolutely not unique. This is unfortunately a real deep crisis. It's an immigration crisis in our country. And it continues to be true uh, for 11 million plus people in the United States that are undocumented, all because of the outdated immigration system. The government has failed to pass any immigration legislation for the last however many decades it's been. And uh, this is a similar story, a traumatic 
PTSD that many undocumented immigrants deal with every day. Yeah, you know, I, I think something that I'm personally curious about if you would be willing to share is how overseas travel works, because I'm sure that your parents had a lot of friends and family they wanted to see, whether in Brazil or South Korea or in other places. So during that time when you were in Chicago, was your family free to travel either within the U.S. or outside the U.S.? Thanks for bringing that up, because that's another thing that we were not able to do or allowed to do, because that would further separate our family. My mom's family was in Brazil. My dad's family was in Brazil. My mom had family also in Korea, and she did not see them for uh, 35 years. I mean, my dad did not see his sister and his family for decades all because we were undocumented, which meant we could not leave this country. Yeah, and this is before the age of Zoom, which we're using now, or Kakao Talk. So that must have been extra difficult. And But I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about the DREAM Act, which I understand you've been very closely linked to like rooted in even from its beginning. Could you tell us a bit more about how you got involved with the DREAM Act and advocacy on a political level when, you know, it was definitely a choice that you didn't have to make? Sure. Definitely uh, DREAM Act has not been passed. And uh, when I was a teen, I decided that the only way that I can get my family out of this hole of poverty was by somehow making use of my talent on the piano. Mm -hmm. And I became my dad's church's uh, pianist, which saved a lot of money. I started performing some gigs and some other performances where I was paid and that helps to pay uh, for my family's rent and bills. And I started winning some competitions. And I found a music school in Chicago called Merritt School of Music. And Merritt School of Music took me in and gave me almost a full scholarship. And soon I won some bigger competitions. And the director of the music school approached me and asked me about college because I was 17. She said, what colleges are you planning on applying to? And she was thinking about all, all the music conservatories. And I said, I'm not going to college because I already had it in my mind that college was not something that someone like me could attend because I was undocumented. And it was true. The moment I started applying for colleges, colleges began rejecting me because of my undocumented status. Anne Monaco was the director of the Amiris School of Music and she gave me 10 applications to fill out and hand back to her. And I give them back to her with everything filled out except for the social security box. And she noticed that and she said, why don't you bring this back to your parents? They'll know your social security number. And I said, okay, I was really shy. And I brought it back to her, empty again the next day. And 
and I started crying. She, she said, why is this empty? And I said, please don't report me to the police. I cannot be responsible for separating my family. And I told her that I was undocumented. And she had no idea what that meant. Nobody knew what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. And so one thing led to another. And long story short, we approached Senator Durbin's office asking if there was anything he could do for me. And what Senator Durbin's office said when they looked into this, they said that actually there's nothing they can do for me. Even if I had the cure for cancer, I would have to be deported back to Brazil. And so we didn't stop there. We began collecting letters of support from every source I knew, from my teachers, from other teachers, from other adults, and other donors from the music school. And we gave them to Senator Durbin. And Senator Durbin said, okay, there's one thing I can do. I can write a personal bill on behalf of you so that you can go to college and be on a path to citizenship. And at that time, it was very easy to do. It was going to pass. It was 99% it was going to pass. This was in Um, 2000 or This was back in 2000, uh, between 2000 and 2001. Okay. So it was the summer of 2001. And then other students that were also undocumented heard about this bill and they uh, secretly went to find Senator Durbin in his parking lot and asked him, can you write a personal bill for me too? I'm also undocumented. And Senator Durbin realized that there were more people like me and he decided to redraft the bill into a larger bill and that bill became known as the Dream Act. And so I'm just going to tell another quick story about the DREAM Act. Yeah, please. So the DREAM Act made it to Congress, to Senate, and President Bush was the president at the time, and he was ready to sign it into law. We had 62 votes lined up in the Senate. It was going to pass. It was ready to be passed, and we had a Senate hearing scheduled for September 12th, 2001. And I was on my way to D.C. on 9-11 when the terrorist attacks happened. Oh. Um, it was, that's a, an extremely fateful day that nobody knew, understood what was going to happen after that. 9-11 not only killed thousands of people uh, in the Twin Towers and the attacks, but also the fear from that attack became exploited to justify a war on terror, to combat the war on terror, what President Bush's administration did was create the DHS. It was a direct response of 9-11. He created the DHS and CBP and ICE, and they began setting up private detention centers all across the country and began detaining immigrants, undocumented immigrants in America that were not terrorists. They were trying to catch terrorists, but they had to somehow look tough on terror. So this is the actions that they took was terrorizing our own immigrants in America. And that's something that came to light 
more and more over as time passed. And what I think is important for people to understand is that after 9-11, the mood of the country changed. The American public became more fearful of the other, of the foreigner, of the outsider, and any immigrant-friendly legislation was out of the question. And that also meant the creation of the DHS, of CBP and ICE, and terrorizing our families in America. Instead of actually dealing with terrorists outside of the country and dealing with that outside of our immigration legislation. And now we have an immigration crisis at hand. Wow, Teresa, the first thing that really struck me about what you just said is that in some ways, that music teacher at the Merritt School in Chicago that inspired you and um, made you reflect on the undocumented status. And in some ways, you were just telling me about your new job as a teacher at the Manhattan School of Music pre-college, which coincidentally, I attended growing up. But I can just totally imagine you serving as a similar kind of mentor figure for other youth who I hope they wouldn't be in a similar situation, but I feel like you would be well-equipped to serve as that teacher. So the students are very lucky to have you. The other thing that struck me was this anti-immigrant sentiment, fear of foreigner mood that you were just describing in the aftermath of 9-11. It sounds very similar in some ways to what's happened uh, recently this year with the pandemic and a lot of anti-Asian, Asian-American sentiment, especially in the past few years toward immigrants in general. So I'm wondering if you could speak about that, whether this trend has continued and why you feel like the DREAM Act has not passed 19 years later, it's, it's hard to believe, you know, almost 20 years later, are we closer to that goal or further away from your experience? Um, that's, uh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, so this is all connected, definitely connected. There's a big culture in America that serves individualism more than togetherness of our societies. Mm -hmm. And I think that plays a huge role in how people think and decide. And also, unfortunately, it justifies people's actions on uh, racism, on anti-immigrant sentiment, on xenophobia, because they're constantly uh, fearful of the other. And I really think that unless we can begin to start thinking of all of us being in this together and not in it for ourselves or our individual families, but you are my family, that, that, that's my brother, that's my sister, you know, we're all in this together. Like the whole coronavirus thing, the mask wearing thing, it's the same thing. They feel threatened when someone says, wear a mask they feel threatened because they don't see it as we're all in this together. They see it as you're crossing the line and you're uh, violating my rights. 
it's an individualistic culture. And I think that ties into everything else with our immigration crisis. This is a crisis that we all have to deal with. It's not just a crisis for immigrants. The Black Lives Matter movement, it's a crisis for all of us. And when Black lives are not freed, then none of us are freed. This problem is systematically built in so deeply because of, I think in the end, because of our culture of individualism, the way we make legislations and laws and uh, create societies is very individualistic. Absolutely. I think I would agree with that assessment of American mentality in the most part. But on the other hand, it seems like there's also some reason for hope. And it seems like there has been progress in some ways, especially regarding DACA this year, especially recently. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of progress has been made since you first started advocating for this issue and what you feel like still needs to be done? What are the biggest barriers now for undocumented youth? So we have made progress over the years. The uh, unafraid, undocumented youth that came out to share their stories and to organize and to rally and march, and they won public support. A couple years ago, there was a poll done, and 86% of Americans uh, supported the DREAM Act. And that's a huge win. And we need all of those people to come out to continue advocating for our immigrants. And their other progress that's been made is that, well, back in 2001, when I was just coming out as being undocumented to my teacher, I thought I was the only undocumented kid. (laughs) And I didn't know there were others like me. And Senator Durbin didn't know either. And the Mm -hmm. government didn't know either. There weren't any surveys or research done on this until the DREAM Act came to surface and more and more students started coming out and safe spaces for undocumented youth started forming around 2007, 2009. And with the 2010 DREAM Act version, there uh, began to be more support in colleges for DREAMers or undocumented youth. And other cultural communities, like Nakasek, for instance, they began organizing around undocumented youth and undocumented immigrants in the country to help them get by better. Mm -hmm. And during COVID-19 right now, there are communities that are helping and supporting undocumented communities. With that said, we have a lot of work to do. We have to raise a lot more consciousness uh, on communities. If people remember, they should remember that it's the Asian communities that have been very hostile, had very hostile things to say about the undocumented immigrants. And so we need to be talking to our own communities at all levels, local, national, at the dinner tables to change the conversation around this issue. I couldn't agree more in my circumstances, but I feel like just thinking back to me in high school joining that rally in D.C., there was relatively little risk 
for me, I really wanted to learn and show solidarity and to help in whatever way I could. But for you originally speaking out and advocating, not just for yourself, but for others, I think it takes a lot of courage because there was so much risk involved and so much at stake. So what has motivated you to keep speaking out on this issue, show solidarity with other communities, despite there being so much at stake? To be honest, um, this is so personal for me. I, uh, so yeah, you were saying that that back then in uh, 2010, 2012, that it was a little bit less risky. It's true. It was less risky until actually Obama got into office and there weren't raids happening all across the country as detention centers were only just starting to arrest the Mm -hmm. immigrants and incarcerate them. But coming out as undocumented, the moment I came out as undocumented, I felt that it was a risk. And my family, we were scared of being separated and we were prepared for the worst. And during Obama's years and Trump years, it's just escalated more and uh, Obama expanded detention centers and deported 3.5 million people. He's known as the deporter-in-chief. Yeah, I just wanted to ask one more question about what you think closure or a resolution looks like in an ideal world. You know, is it citizenship for everybody automatically? Is it being able to travel freely and attain driver's licenses and apply to schools? And in your case as well, because I saw that you were naturalized as a U.S. citizen, and I can definitely relate to that experience because I myself was also naturalized last year, and it was a weird mix of... Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was a... Yeah, weird mix of emotions from regret, guilt, uh, relief, pride, a, a, lot, a lot of things. But to ask you, what do you think closure means for this issue? Well, the immediate thing that we can do is free people from the detention centers right now. We can close the detention centers. We can abolish ICE. ICE has only been around since 9-11, the creation of DHS. We can put CBP back where it used to be in the Treasury Department, rather than terrorizing every person that comes into this country. That's one thing we can do. And in a perfect world, I think that we need to learn to empathize with each other, with our differences as one human race, rather than this group of people or that group of people or it was talking about individualism earlier we need to empathize with each other a lot more and until that can happen i don't think that undocumented immigrants would find justice 
or uh, Black lives would find justice or healthcare become accessible to all of us and housing made affordable for all of us and all of us to have clean water and clean air. And I think that empathy is something that I hope that we can be more empathetic. Yeah, that's definitely something that we're trying to do in this project as well is foster just a little bit more empathy by learning more about communities and stories that we might not be so familiar with. Is there anything, any final takeaways or message uh, that you would like to leave for listeners about what they could do or what they could do to uh, learn more about DREAM Act, immigration reform, and to help with this issue? Yes, I think it's important for people to become involved in their uh, local communities, in the local churches, or there are underground railroad type sanctuary spaces that are made available to undocumented immigrants. And they need more volunteers, always. They need the support. And during coronavirus, undocumented immigrants don't get any benefits from the government. And they are a lot of our essential workers. And they need more support from our communities. So somehow, if people could find that community, it'd be great if they can join them. so much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time